Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People, Power, Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Hi, my name is Petra Alderman and I am a research fellow at CEDA and I'm going to be your host for this episode. It is my great pleasure to welcome Andreas Schedler, who is going to be our guest for this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Andreas. Yeah, many thanks, Petra. Andreas is Senior Research Fellow at the Democracy Institute of the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. And he's well known for his work on authoritarian elections, democratic consolidation and transition, anti-political establishment parties, political accountability and organized violence. Currently, though, Andreas studies processes of democratic subversion, basic democratic trust and political polarization. It is political polarization that we are going to talk about in this podcast episode. I don't think that I need to introduce the topic of political polarization at all. After all, it has become one of the hottest debates in contemporary politics, especially with the Donald Trump presidency in the United States and the Brexit referendum in the United Kingdom. Andreas, political polarization is such a ubiquitous concept. And unlike many other concepts that we political scientists use, this one seems almost self-explanatory. But have we been getting this concept wrong? Yes, I think so. You're right. Uh, The concept is everywhere. It's on everybody's minds. It's well at the center of contemporary debates on democratic backsliding, the global crisis of democracy, etc. And yes, we do tend to use it as if it were self-explanatory, as if you would have a basic consensus of how to use it. But I do think there are many things we are getting wrong. And probably the most important thing I think we're getting wrong is basic distinction we have in political science is the one between benign polarization and pernicious polarization. There are many versions of this division or these adjectives, but the basic idea is that there's one polarization which is kind of nice and fine and okay for democracy, and another one which is a danger, subversive, and we should be worried about. And I think that really gets it wrong because it suggests that any kind of conflict we have, any kind of distinction we have in in democracy may be called polarization. If you have a little conflict, then we have a little polarization. If you have harsher conflicts and more passionate confrontations, then we have more polarization. And at some point, we might be getting worried. And I think that's misguided. I think that came out of the debate on the US. In the US, people started worrying about polarization kind of over the past decade, rediscovering the concept in the 90s, when basically that's the standard story we are telling each other. And Republicans under Greenwich started demonizing Republicans, started adopting a very harsh and we would say intolerant tone in democratic politics, started treating their adversaries as enemies, many would say. And so in a context where really the heat of ideological debate, the heat of political debate got really higher and higher, political scientists got started interested in the topic, uh, studying the topic, but they didn't study it in the sphere and at the level of political conflict, public discourse, political rhetoric, but in public attitudes, in public opinion. We had the instruments, we know how to do public opinion surveys, 
So that's what we did. So people started studying the differences in policy attitudes between Republicans and Democrats, basically. And what they found was that the members, the activists, the voters of both parties were getting more and more distinctive. So if previously we had two parties where we were complaining that they were kind of a programmatic mess, they were all over the place, it wasn't quite clear who was who, and there were liberals in the Republican parties and conservatives and religious people in the Democratic side. So now survey researchers were saying, hey, the picture is getting clearer now, and we are getting towards a picture of programmatic distinctiveness and clarity as we are used to it in a, let's say, European context. And researchers were talking about intra-group homogeneity, how close are people within each party, and intergroup heterogeneity, how different they are getting. And they were calling this process polarization. And in this tradition, in this context, polarization didn't mean anything else that parties and party voters were getting a little distinct, not even that much distinct. Really, on many issues, there was still quite some proximity, I would say, not that much distance. But within a context where we had that usage of polarization, when comparative political scholars who studied politics at other parts of the world were stepping into the debate, they were trying to be respectful to the U.S. debate. And instead of saying, this isn't quite polarization you're talking about, this is normal democratic politics, they said, okay, what you are talking about... That's kind of the benign form of polarization. That's what we wish for. That's a positive form of polarization. We want to have programmatically meaningful parties. That's nice. But then there are other forms of polarization where we should be worried about. And I think that's not the right way of putting it. Yeah, let me pick up on this, what you were talking about, because you mentioned, obviously, this form of conflict in democracy. And we know that democracy is basically an institutionalization of some kind of political and societal conflict. So all democracies, in an essence, have some kind of conflict that's being managed. But when we look at that, where do we draw a line? And you were talking that the distinction between good polarization and bad polarization isn't really a very helpful distinction for us to think about, because there is this normal democratic conflict. But what is political polarization and how different form of a conflict it is when we compare it with what is normally happening in democratic societies? I think, Petra, that's really the central question in this conceptual debate. We really need to start with acknowledging, as you say, that conflict is an essential, defining, constitutive part of liberal democracy. So the question is, at which point should we talk about something that gets worrisome, that turns into a danger to democracy? By drawing this line, we need to anchor ourselves in democratic theory. I mean, to think about, okay, what what does democracy require and what kind of things endanger democracy? And I think what democracy requires is something I call basic democratic trust, which is the basic confidence among political actors, among adversaries, between actors and public officials, that others are really playing the game by the rules, that they're really obeying the fundamental rules of democracy. So they are not trying to reach power through violent rebellion, they are not supporting violence, not condoning violence, they are respecting free and fair elections, they are not bribing or intimidating judges, they are not buying votes, they are not sending killers to each other's houses, etc. So really, very basic stuff. And I think polarization begins when this kind of basic trust begins to fracture. 
when actors think of others, that they are kind of canceling the democratic contract, that they are beginning to overstep basic democratic rules, that they are leaving the democratic consensus. This, I think, is something very fundamental. And this is something that I think we all understand that this is a motif for concern for Democrats. I think it's important to formulate this on the level of, let's say, perceptions, what actors think about each other, or discourses, what they say about each other, because very often this is controversial. And we should be recognizing this. But in my mind, this would be really the borderline, the thing that divides conflicts that are still within the bounds of democracy and conflicts we might call polarizing because they cross the bounds of democracy. That is very interesting. And I can definitely see the merit in, in making that distinction and drawing a bit of a, a line of between where the normal democratic conflict ends and where this more worrisome type of conflict that we might call political polarization begins. When we reflect on this way of distinguishing political polarization from the normal democratic conflict, what would you say, what is the key problems in the ways that we have been talking and political polarization, as I mentioned before, has been widely discussed by the media, not just in academic literature, and has been thrown around quite a lot. So do you see any problems in this free use of this term of polarization? Do you think that our use of it might also be detrimental? I think our use has been a bit unthinking and simplifying. It has pulled us towards the idea that any kind of intense conflict is dangerous to democracy. And I think we should be getting away from that. And we should be getting away from this tight association. Polarization is dangerous for democracy and current processes of democratic backsliding, subversion are driven by polarization. First, we need to recognize that, that polarization, it's a, a dynamic self-feeding process. So it's likely to be cause and effect at the same time. And if we accept that at the heart of polarization, there's something like the destruction of basic democratic trust, then I think we need to think about two very different scenarios. One scenario is where you have bad actors, illiberal governments, authoritarian candidates, non-democratic actors who start destroying democracy, dismantling checks and balances, suffocating basic rights, etc. So if that happens, what would we ask democratic actors to do? We would ask them to call authoritarians out and to denounce these anti-democratic norm transgressions. And what do we get as a consequence? Polarization. So if people start transgressing democratic norms, and if others respond and criticize that, that's one way into democratic polarization. And it's one way which is really desirable. It's better to have transgressions and denouncing them than to have transgressions and keeping the silence and not saying anything. And the second way into polarization, a democratic crisis, is when things run in a decent manner and democracy is intact and people start destroying democratic trust in a frivolous manner in bad faith. And that is, I think, what we have been witnessing in the U.S., Donald Trump, during his whole presidency, and especially in the 2020 elections, with his uh, claim of being robbed of his electoral victory, I think that's really a, a textbook example of someone destroying democratic trust, polarizing politics in a frivolous manner. This is really a way into polarization, and which is very different from the other trajectory of, that starts from real abuses of power. You've already started 
touching upon who could be the polarizing actors and you've mentioned leaders but I wonder and this is often what you mentioned at the beginning that political parties often get highlighted as the polarizing actors that push this type of a more worrisome conflict onto the electorate and you know are the ones that feed into these existing or try to exploit existing cleavages in the electorate so when we look at the level of the actors who do you think are key actors are we supposed to be talking more about individual leaders or could we also talk about the level of organizations political parties or even institutions so who are these actors the most precise answer would be it varies but i do think we have seen a tendency towards personalization of polarization as kind of the emergence of polarizing entrepreneurs uh, individuals mm. who are in that job of polarization if you think back in the 70s we had a classic text and a classic author giovanni satori italian political scientist who talked about polarized pluralism as a type of party system. He was thinking really about configurations of party competition, and he thought polarized party systems were just one type of interaction between parties, basically between extremist parties on the flanks, uh, uh, competing against center parties, occupying the, the political center. Today, I do think the, the scenario is quite different. We do have situations, again, like the U.S., where we have a mixture between strong individuals like Donald Trump at its center, but also very highly institutionalized party competition, really two dominant parties that structure the political space. But that's just one situation. We have situations like in Brazil, under Bolsonaro, Mexico, and Andres Manuel López Obrador, which are very much centered on one figure. And the polarizing dynamics, it's very much they and their followers against the rest. And they may have their personal party as well, very much a personalized vehicle. And they may confront really a camp of fragmented actors who are just unified by their common opposition to the polarizing actors. So that's more common today than it was decades ago. And this really speaks of a personalizing trend in situations of polarization. When you were talking before about the different way how political parties maybe look today to what they looked before, there was a centre and there was there were some extremist parties on the, the sides. And you mentioned that today this is quite different. I wonder what is happening to the centre, because oftentimes when we have these discussions of political polarisation, the centre seems to disappear. Yeah, that's one of the most worrisome trends today. Still in Giovanni Sartori's world, and he... In a way, what he did was what we sometimes do. We polarize from single cases and his strong case. He didn't just look at interwar cases of polarized European democracies that ended up breaking down like Weimar Germany. He very much looked at Italian post-war politics. And there you had the Christian Democratic Party occupying the center and everybody knew there is no possibility of removing it from there. It will be part of any government. It will dominate any government. There will be noise on the extremes, but not much more. So the system in itself was not really in danger. And today what we see is that we do have not two poles competing against the center, but two poles competing against each other. And the center really, as you say, disappears. At least it weakens. It is becoming terribly difficult to for political actors let's say for conciliatory positions to situate themselves 
in the center because there's the centrifugal drive is so strong and everybody would just try to to kick out those who try to avoid the polarizing dynamics so really in the end we have a confrontation between two camps who are really veering competing for power and that really raises the stakes of politics if before the question was okay with whom will the italian christian democrats govern a bit to the right a bit to the left so the stakes were relatively modest back then at least in the italian context and today the stakes are huge will we win or will the other sides prevail so that's really very different and a very much more explosive dynamic Yeah, and I, I like what you just said there, because it really feels like politics has become such a zero-sum game in recent years in many countries that you really see that very strong competition between these parties to the point that there is really no reasonable middle ground or finding some kind of reasonable compromise in one way or another. We have talked already about who the polarizing actors are, but I wonder when we talk about polarization, what are the drivers of political polarization that you would identify? And I think once again, I'd like to come back to what we were talking about in terms of polarization being not a normal democratic conflict, but something that has gone beyond that and something that really challenges democracy. So if we talk about the drivers of polarization, can we really talk about the normal cleavages that exist in a society or do we need to look for something more special or something more sinister behind it the literature has been or at least part of the literature has been looking at cleavages at what you mentioned long standing structural conflicts which citizens themselves actors in society would recognize as deep conflicts and would probably identify with one side or the other there's no doubt that such conflicts do exist and that they do feed or do at least aid or encourage such processes so no doubt that some of these polarizing situations are fed by class conflict or religious cleavages or cultural divisions but i do think as they were alluding to that such cleavages by themselves they may very well be processed through normal democratic means they are supposed to provide the food for normal conflict they provide the structure for democratic conflict so in and by themselves they do not constitute a at least not a sufficient motive for politics getting out of hand and escalating towards polarization when politics really turns not just ugly but veers into undemocratic terrain into terrain where actors violate democratic rules or suspect that others do so that's really the work of actors so really think there's no way to keep this responsibility off the shoulders of participating actors they are really those who feed that conflict even if once you are in the conflict it's often fed by the democratic logic of reciprocity democracy is supposed to be a game where every everybody complies with the rules rule compliance is not absolute we're not supposed to renounce violence the others oppress us with violence and exploit us with violence it's reciprocal it's mutual so if one side is breaking this contract of reciprocity or is suspected in doing so this has consequences for both sides so the other side is begins to ask itself okay so if they are playing foul how should i respond so it's very easy to get into not just spirals of mutual recriminations but also spirals of foul play spirals of transgressions which each side conceives as defensive so i need to do this because 
If I don't, the others will infringe on my rights or will distort the playing field or take away our liberties, etc. So it's very easy to get in a game where we are close to the dynamics we know from quarreling children, pointing with fingers at each other. In the end, you have a dynamics which is tinges on actors and what they do and their conflictive dynamics, but no one kind of takes responsibility. Everybody thinks it's not me, it's the others. It really seems like this vicious cycle of just laying blame on one another. As you just said, nobody wants to take the responsibility and just blames the other. And I think that goes back to what you were saying right at the beginning when we were talking about what political polarization is and that breakdown of basic democratic trust where people no longer trust each other to uphold these democratic rules and the systems and almost take a preventative action of what you just been saying of trying to defend themselves, but in ways that actually undermine the whole system at the end of the day. Now, so far, we have been talking about political polarizations in countries where maybe the starting point is a democracy or some form of democracy. But political polarization has often been discussed in authoritarian countries and contexts as well. And I wonder, is there any particular difference that you can see between political polarization in democracies and political polarization in autocracies? Or could we actually even talk about political polarization in authoritarian contexts? I think we shouldn't. There are good reasons why we have been focusing our debates on democracies. At the beginning, I said there are many things we may be getting wrong when we talk about polarization. Talking about polarization in dictatorships, that's one way of getting it wrong. If polarization, if we conceive it as a kind of conflict that is problematic for democracy in democracy, because it involves a violation of basic democratic norms, then it basically doesn't make any sense in dictatorship. Yeah, we have the regime, we have the dictator that is defined by ignoring, violating democratic rules. In such a context, the language, the vocabulary of polarization doesn't contribute anything. We already have a language to describe opposition actors of opposition parties opposing autocracies, trying to democratize such regimes. And I think we should keep talking about democratizing actors, democratic actors, struggles for democracy. I think there's really no analytic gain, no conceptual necessity to say that someone is a polarizing actor because they oppose Putin or Lukashenko or anybody. Just to push you on that a little bit more, because you do have in some countries, and I think that's true, that you have these figures that could really split the society. So in that sense, what would you maybe offer as an alternative analytical lens as, or as an alternative explanatory term if we don't talk about polarization? I would say if the split is between, let's say, the dictator and the rest, then there may be other reasons than democracy that cause that split. Dictators often, they also have policy positions, they have ideologies, they may be part of the conflict. They often use their ideological positions to divide the opposition and to avoid common front against them on democratic grounds. I understand when people tell me, and there are good reasons to do so, when people tell me, and shouldn't we be more attentive to substantive sources of polarization in democracy? Policy conflicts, value conflicts, which are not peripherally or marginally about democracy. That I understand that. I understand that people may really have passionate debates about, in the US, gun control and abortion and cultural divisions. Uh, and even if I think that these debates often veer into mutual perceptions that the others are 
not just threatening our value system and our way of life and basic existential values, but also kind of democracy. I do think that that's kind of a substantive policy dimension of polarization we need to take into account. But again, kind of my point would be these conflicts are really polarizing from the moment onwards when actors treat each other in an intolerant way, in a way that makes them treat others as enemies who are not legitimate contenders in the political arena, but should be really kicked out, should not be listened to, do not have equal rights in the common political community. That makes sense. My final question, Ray, we've been talking about this dire state of the world's politics, especially in democracies, rising levels of political polarization, even if we probably adopt the definition that you propose that really focuses on the nature of the extraordinary conflict, not the normal democratic conflict. Do you see any potential effective ways of overcoming polarization once it starts? And I think this is the, the big, you know, one million dollar <laughs> question. So if you don't have an answer to that, that's fine but can you from thinking deeply about polarization and what it is who drives it what kind of things can be used to polarize people could you potentially see way out of this political quagmire well the bad thing i think is not that i myself uh, don't have a good answer but i think that we as a discipline and probably we as societies we don't have good answers for that one thing that polarization does that it destroys our communicative abilities our willingness and our capacity to talk to each other in a way we, we require for democratic dialogue. So there are many initiatives that try to restore the social tissue, build bridges among the camps, etc. I think that's really laudable, but I can't imagine that any genuine solution will come from that. We may put some hope on the personalized nature of these processes. Sometimes the more they hinge on certain persons, the more they benefit from the disappearance of these persons. So, For example, with Bolsonaro fading into the background in Brazil, politics continues to be quite polarized, but not that much anymore. Mm -hmm. It has toned down a bit. In Mexico, when Lopez Obrador will be withdrawing in two years, the poison will not disappear, but it will be lessened. That's the hope. So sometimes if it's really polarizing entrepreneurs, if they are out of the political arena, that helps a lot. Otherwise, it's really, really difficult. If you look back in history, it's really a bit frightening, especially if you look into war experiences. How did you get out of polarization through the collapse of democracy, catastrophe? Representatives of the two enemy camps found each other in prison cells and understood that uh, probably it hadn't been a good idea fighting each other. Also, kind of given the difficulty of constructing, reviving the middle ground, the center conciliatory proposals, it's really, really hard to get out of polarizing dynamics. I was hoping we could finish on a more positive note, but I think it is also valuable to have a realistic assessment of the situation and of the challenges that political polarization presents. And I think perhaps maybe a lesson that we can take from what you've been talking about is to try and not get to the point where polarization really takes place, to try maybe prevent the polarization from happening early on rather than try to remedy once it is entrenched. 
Well, thank you, Andreas, for joining the People Power Politics podcast and for talking to us about political polarization. It's been absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast. And I would just like to encourage our listeners that if they would like to learn more about this topic, to to read your thought-provoking article called Rethinking Political Polarization that was published in June 2023 in Political Science Quarterly, which is one of the leading political science journals. Thank you very much, Andreas. It's been absolute pleasure. And I hope we will get a chance to revisit this conversation at a later point again. Many thanks, Petra. It was a real pleasure being with you. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.